You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Black Hollywood Live's Justice is Served. If you're joining us for the very first show, welcome. Hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, rate, comment, subscribe. Let us know how we're doing. If you're back, welcome. We love talking legal news, and uh, hopefully you do too, because you keep coming back for it. I am Phil Svitek, still holding down the fort for Sarah Zari, uh, who will, I promise, be back. And eventually we will have Mari Fagel as well, so your legal ladies... We'll be back uh, judging these various issues. But uh, uh, a lady who you guys know and has stayed consistent, uh, which, by the way, again, it's just they got stuff going on. They're all working attorneys. We have Chelsea Galicia. Hi there. Thank you. We got a lot to talk about. And uh, so let's open things up with the case of the week, um, which uh, which is, of course, 50 Cent and his bankruptcy he files for bankruptcy and leave it to our uh, n- uh network co-creator maria Menounos to be part of the breaking of the story for e-news um it was during uh, during the southpaw junket uh which is his new movie coming out with jake gyllenhaal and rachel mcadams and uh you know Obviously, it's a very sensitive issue, and you know, uh, a lot of times when you deal with these kind of stuff with celebrities, then the publicists get involved of what can be said, what can't be said. If it's to this extent, I imagine, I'll, you know, even the legal team gets involved with the publicist teams of like, whoa, 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 no, we, if it, if there's any question of this, we're not doing the interview type of stuff. But obviously, Fifty felt very comfortable with Maria. Everyone else felt comfortable with Maria, and uh, you know. He he gave us a quote about this bankruptcy. Yeah, it's a big thing for him to open up about something like this because bankruptcies, uh, even though his isn't the kind where he's like totally broken, he's looking for for help. He's just looking for help here reorganizing. It's still uh, kind of stigmatized and, and seen poorly, and so it's probably sensitive to him. And he probably uh, wasn't thrilled to to talk about it. But yeah, he must have felt very comfortable with Maria to tell her that he's looking out for his business. This is a business move. He's reorganizing, restructuring. Let's give people, so uh, to take a quick step back, let's give people the context of why 50 is in fact filing for bankruptcy and and what the stipulations around it are. All right. So basically what it looks like is that those people who were estimating that he's worth 500 million, even Forbes earlier this year, uh, I think reported that he is worth about $155 million. That is probably not like that. According to the bankruptcy petition, his uh, both his debts and his assets are in the range of 10 to $50 million. What has happened recently, last year and just days ago, is that there have been some pretty big civil verdicts that have come down against him. So last year, he... Um, 
with, there's a, a judgment against him for $17 million from Sleek Audio, who uh, won a case that says that uh, Fiddy ripped off their headphone um, design and uh, created the same thing on his own. And then um, he was very recently uh, found to have invaded the privacy of Rick Ross's ex-girlfriend. Uh, her name is Lestonia Leviston. And on his website, there was this sex This is 50.com. Yeah, on that website, there was a sex tape of this woman, not with Rick Ross, but with somebody else. Uh, and so she sued him for invasion of privacy and has won a $5 million judgment. And on the same day that he was supposed to um, give testimony that would help the court figure out punitive damages, he declared bankruptcy. And what that had the effect of doing was sort of holding off, halting that uh, proceeding from going forward doesn't mean he gets to avoid the judgment um, altogether uh, unless it's somehow one of the debts that is discharged. But when something is done intentionally, like a fraud or a willful tort, like if I beat you up and you uh, win a case against me, I can't then just declare bankruptcy and be like, oh, I don't have the money. You would show that that was a willful, malicious act, and therefore it's not... Um, dischargeable in, in bankruptcy, but it just looks like his cash flow is not going to be able to keep up with all this money that's going out uh, right now. And so that's why he has filed for bankruptcy protection. So what this means is that his debts are going to be reorganized. And for a long time, I was like, what the heck does that even mean reorganized? So I got on the phone with a colleague, Darren Schlechter, who's a bankruptcy attorney here in LA, and he broke it down for me. And basically it means when you're restructuring that you don't have the cash flow coming in to pay everything that's got to go out. And so you figure out a payment plan with people, uh, with the, the creditors. Usually the, they don't pay everything back, you know, maybe 50 cents on the dollar, 90, however it is worked out. Uh, a majority of the creditors have to agree with this. The court has to agree to it. And so uh, he can essentially, uh, to some of his creditors at least, uh, pay less than he owed them. And in exchange, he's got to be very transparent with his financial situation. So all of the creditors, even uh, the public, will find out details of his financial life that we would otherwise not be privy to. So it's going to be interesting for us to to see what's uh, been going on in the 50-cent empire in the last couple of years. Um, and I think that's basically why he did it. Well, he, as he, as he told, um, as he told Maria and E news, I'm taking precautions that any good business person would take in this situation. You know, when you're successful and stuff, you become a target. I don't want to be a bullseye. I don't want anybody to pick me as the guy that they just come to with, uh, astronomical claims and go through all that. Man, it sounds a little bit like a cop-out because what he had these civil verdicts against him are, are not for negligence, are not for things that, ac that accidents that Well, happened. he claims that he didn't, yes, it was posted, but he wasn't the one who authorized it. He didn't do it. Sure. I, I, yeah, and a, a jury didn't but quite it, believe it. But here's the, I mean, he's, I mean, it's a, it's a company. He's protected, right? I mean, it's it's well, not it's not a DBA where it, he's that. Yes, it's his website and so on, but it's not. 
he's protected through whether it's an LLC, an S corporation. Well, it is interesting because this is personal protection, but has to do with his businesses. He separately put his boxing promotion company, SMS Promotions, into bankruptcy a couple of months ago. Um, and that might also be related to um, the sex tape claim. But I, I, yes, I guess when, when you have uh, a, a fortune that's large, perhaps not $500 million large, but even assuming at, at the highest end, assuming he was truthful on that petition that he's got up to $50 million, you definitely want to protect it but uh, there there's a there's a little bit of a victim thing here where you know people come after him uh, sure when you have deep pockets and you make a mistake willful or an accidental mistake and and post something something gets posted on your your website or you come out with a a, a headphone that's remarkably similar to partners that you were were with just right before that these are in, intentional things that are going to get you in trouble. And I would assume he would have an attorney who was guiding him to say, hey, if you come out with these headphones, they're awfully similar to the, the ones that you were looking at with Sleek. So, you know, maybe we shouldn't do, shouldn't do this. You know, there when you take the the risk and be an entrepreneur and as he does, he signs, you know, deals with with company, the headphones. And when you when you do things may or may not be his doing about the uploading, but. Um, when, when you're, you know, this, this website is his personal thing. It's also business. It's promotions. You become responsible for the content that, that, that goes up on, on the website, uh, to some degree. Uh, there's a lot of responsibility in being rich. And I think that that's something that people don't really realize. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, but the difference is, uh, you know, he's the face associated with that brand, right? I mean, it's called This Is 50 versus, you know, if it's the Hollywood Report and someone put it up, then, you know, you have an employee reprimanded for that. It's not like or Mr. Hollywood, Hollywood Reporter, yeah. you're in trouble, you know, and, and, and someone's pockets aren't being all of a sudden stripped away. And this is true. And the other side of that is that, you know, the the Hollywood Reporter is an entity that's, you know, controlled by by many people. So not one guy is probably at the Hollywood Reporter is probably making the kind of money that that fifty cent is. So there's kind of this give and take when you are this rich and famous. And it is um, it's interesting, of course, the jokes that are coming out because of this. You know, fifty cents. To, you know, that's all he's got to his name. But that's not quite what this means. He's not broke, although there are uh, a lot of situations where people file Chapter Eleven bankruptcy, like he did, and it doesn't end up working out with the creditors. And so that means that the bankruptcy itself would be dropped or it would be converted into a chapter seven, which is liquidation, which is really the I'm broke kind of bankruptcy. So it'll be interesting to see um, what happens, but it'll probably take a long time. I understand that this restructuring thing can take um, even years. Um, as I mean, essentially, you're auditing out. everything, and audits are not fun. Yeah, it's going to be a pretty intense, and it's also going to be really expensive. I didn't realize um, that for people like 50, th this bankruptcy endeavor is really expensive. Uh, my friend estimate, my, Darren, that I, I mentioned earlier, he estimates that it probably cost about fifty to $100,000 up front to retain um, the attorney and, and, and team to do this, and that it'll cost... Ultimately, about a million dollars 
for the whole, the fees and, and everything that it takes to do this. So, uh, it's a pretty big decision. It's pretty big, um, cost to, to put up to, I don't want to say avoid paying his debts, but to some extent, it's a little uh, avoiding to paying some of them. Um, well, we hopefully. shall see. Yeah, I mean, William William A. Brewer III is his uh, attorney. Uh, I mean, he, he's got several attorneys, but in this case, that's that's who uh, is representing him. And uh, I hope they, you know, whatever... Whatever they discussed, obviously, this is the conclusion that they came to, for better or worse. Yeah, it's pretty dramatic that, you know, they declared on the same day as the testimony he was supposed to give on the punitive damages. So it it, it makes it pretty juicy. Uh, and we will definitely be uh, following up on this and see if he is, you know, able to get this fresh start that uh, bankruptcy is supposed to allow for. I, I hadn't heard this phrase before, you know, Darren this morning told me this, that the, the purpose of bankruptcy is to help debtors who are honest but unfortunate get a fresh start. Mm-hmm. So if he's really made, you know, honest mistakes and um, some of those debts get discharged or they get payment plans that are less than what exactly he owes as of right now, then this will be a win for him. I, I mean, bankruptcy... It's not fun in that regard. I mean, there's there's repercussions beyond just what we talked about of bankruptcy. It, I, I for few, you know, for few, like you, if let's say you recover, right? You know, as you mentioned, it's a restructure. It's gaining back his, you know, um, for lack of a better term, financial independence. Again, it's rebuilding. But let's say he does rebuild, and you know, however many years that could be, then all of a sudden, it's still not easy going they people see that of like okay you did you know you just filed you, for bankruptcy you filed for bankruptcy and so that is always going to be considered well yeah it'll be on his credit certainly for about 10 years but he i don't know how much he actually needs credit but it's one of the dings on donald trump's you know record in the public's eye that he's you know filed for bankruptcy uh, multiple times for like about four times uh so it's not viewed very favorably but I, I, I guess sometimes it's necessary. So there you have it. Hopefully, not for me or for you. Um, but hopefully, it comes out all right. Shall we move on? Here's, I mean, as a separate thing, if you're uh, if you're a college student, you know, and I hear this a lot, when you got zero dollars in the bank account, are you technically bankrupt? <laughs> <laughs> if you got no money, I don't know. That's oh, that was always like the the base definition. You got no money. So, and I know a lot of college people well, like, I got two bucks in the if, account. If you've got no money, but you have no debt, then you're not. The problem is when debt overcomes your assets. Most college assets. kids got student loans and this stuff This is like true. That. And what's unfortunate for most students who have these loans is that they're not dischargeable in bankruptcy. So hmm. that is a whole nother issue that will probably um, That's be another, another day. Yeah, That's another exactly. day, another case. But we shall get to our first docket story. Yes. Which is a uh, follow-up to, uh, it's a follow-up to the Eric Garner case. So you'll remember that Eric Garner is a Staten Island man who was essentially choked to death as he was saying, I can't breathe. This was almost a year ago to the day. Um, and, uh, the family and the city, uh, 
entered into a settlement before even the one-year anniversary and before the filing of the official case against the city. They settled upon $5.9 million. And, and the question now is, is that really enough? Uh, and, you know, there's different ways of looking at is it enough. It's very difficult, of course, to... To calculate the the value of the of a life to you know a wife and to children, but uh, according to the law, it's measured on economic damages, so loss of future earnings, um, and uh, and the pain and suffering, which is pretty obvious to most of us who watched that video. But the family doesn't see it as a victory, and not because the amount isn't high enough. Uh, it's certainly not anywhere near the $75 million that they uh, were looking for when they filed their notice of intent to file a claim. Um, but what they're really looking for is justice, and that is very difficult to measure in dollars and cents. I mean, I think the justice that they're looking for is the changes in the police policies and, and, and brutality um, cases that, you know, go away, that we do not see this all the time or at all, hopefully one day this will think, be a thing of the past. And so uh, I think the family was um, apprehensive to be seen as money hungry, but uh, they did want it to make an impact. And for better or worse, when you're talking about something like a police department, a way to hurt them and to get them to pay attention and alter their behavior um, is by you know, hurting them in in the pocketbook. So, but is that, and because it's police department now, does it get into uh, you know taxpayer money and stuff like that? So it's like you know, because I mean, the positive spin could be, you know, hey, we don't want this money because it, it's not that it's hurting the police department; it's ultimately hurting you, the people. So instead, what we prefer is if you, the people, try to enact change, force change. Well, it. What tends to happen with these kinds of claims is that once this, a city or police department, county, state pays out enough of these, then somewhere a policy changes, uh, there's training that's done, they try and prevent this from happening again. Um, and that, I think, is what what we would ultimately want, what the family would ultimately want. But there's just no way for the family to file a claim that would end with that result. We uh, compensate people with, with money, which is is an incomplete justice in my eyes, but it's difficult to do it any other way. I know a lot of my work comp clients, they they, they want justice in their, their case. They're given an, a settlement offer, and I think it's fair given what the law is and um, and I think it's fair, but they're like, but that's not that's not enough. They don't know what I've been through, and I want things to change over there. And I have to say, I'm really sorry. I understand that what you went through is terrible, and that you wouldn't want anybody else to go through that. But no, no kind of claim that you file, at least in a work comp claim, is going to change the way people do things. The the organization, the company, has to to take a message from that loss. Uh, of that money or that case and say, we got to do things differently. So it's going to be two ways. It's going to be that these uh, verdicts come out and the police departments and cities do th- things differently. And hopefully, um, you know, in the family, their pleas for justice 
We'll turn to pleas for involvement in the political system, which is where our laws come from in the first place. So it's going to be slow progress, but I think progress is being made. Even here in L.A., I've read that all the police are going to go through new training. Uh, it's actually a refresher of what they already done, but again, multiple times. And, you know, that in itself might seem like a small thing, but it is a step in the right direction. Speaking of, uh, <clears throat> speaking of, the, that's this is where justice and politics always kind of intertwine. intertwine. And so, uh, President uh, Obama, you know, he's in the news, always in the news. But uh, you know, do felons deserve a second chance? Yeah. And so, so that uh, at least this week is the topic of discussion. Yeah. So he um, the other day commuted the sentences of forty six people who were serving. Um, I think most of them were serving life sentences for drug-related crimes. And so he um, has granted them an early release. These were, uh, a majority of these 46 people uh, were in uh, prison for drug-related offenses of crack and... Uh, Nonviolent as well. Yeah. Is the term that's being there thrown was, out. Um, the, recently in 2010, Congress changed the law on the punishment of crack and, and powder cocaine because one used to be exponentially higher than the other one and it was sort of unfair. So they got rid of that, which meant that a lot of these people who got life sentences, if they had been convicted today, would not have nearly as long of a sentence. And then, in fact, that the amount of time that they've spent in prison to this point would cover the sentence had they been convicted today. So uh, these are nonviolent, low-level offenders um, who he has granted um, clemency for. Uh, but 46 people of the tens of thousands of people who I, I know have applied, and, and I'm sure as many uh, would, would qualify, um, of, all, of everyone, only 46 people, I, I, I was kind of stunned. I mean, that's not even enough to represent one person from every state in the union. 46 people, come on. It's like, did they have one person working on this part-time for the last year? Because last year is when they announced, you know, that there was going to be a big push for this. 46 people? I, um. According to Cory, uh, according to Cory Booker, um, in 2013, uh, African American men alone under the federal criminal justice supervision, uh, totaled one point, almost 1.7 million people. Yeah. So, uh, 46 really takes a dent in that 1.7 million. I mean, kind of not really, but, but that is interesting. The, the, the rest of that statistic from, from Cory Booker is a, a, about and he's uh, quoting the U.S. Bureau of Criminal Statistics, who may have been the same entity that uh, John Legend uh, quoted when he made his, uh, I believe it was it his Grammy or Oscar speech, where he pointed out that the number of of black men under state and federal correctional supervision is more than the number of people that were enslaved in 1850. Uh, th that just goes to show how how many people and you know if my number is not off it's close to half a million of these are nonviolent drug offenders who 
federally are costing taxpayers about $30,000 a year each for us to house them. Uh, meanwhile, these private prison facilities are getting rich beyond belief, but we are losing a lot of money, and, and that's not to mention the lives that are just wasting away sitting in, in prison uh, that don't need to be, that are not making a difference uh, in the drug war or in the crime rate um, at all. Uh, I, I, I hope that there is more money that's allocated to going through these applications. I read some of the stories of, of the people who did not get um, their sentences commuted this Scott go around. Yeah, Scott Walker, not the guy running for, for president, but a, another Scott Walker who's serving a life sentence without parole for selling drugs is um, very disappointed because he's been uh, sober for almost 20 years and has spent his time in prison uh, taking plumber's training to the tune of 2,000 hours, he says. He's completed a course for commercial driver's license and he's read more than a 1,000 books. So it sounds like... He, of all people, would be, could be, stands a very good chance to be a productive and contributing member of society if he were to be let out. Uh, there is another sad story, Dickie Joe Jackson, who is caught selling meth in order to pay for his young son's bone marrow transplant, didn't also make the cut. And when I say didn't make the cut, I don't believe that means that they were rejected, um, but they're, they're, they're still pending. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, but if you just look, I mean, it's easy to, oh, they're, you know, selling drugs, just lock them up and throw away the key and, and forget that there are, are real people behind those bars and families and children that are affected, um, terribly. And it's not helping us as a, as a society to keep them back there, uh, locked up. So, uh, I, I hope there's more of an emphasis on, uh, an emphasis in in terms of money and effort spent reviewing these uh, petitions and and letting more people out so um, that people have a chance to be to to live a real life you know to be productive members of society you know the the criteria is is not that easy you know they have to um, have been convicted of a law that now would be a much shorter sentence if they were convicted today. They have to be nonviolent. Uh, they cannot have any ties to any large-scale criminal enterprise like a cartel or a gang or anything like that. They have to have served at least 10 years of their sentence and have no significant criminal history. They had to have been uh, on good behavior in prison and no history of, of, of violence. So this isn't just saying let anybody out. Um, there's still some strict criteria, but uh, I think it'll... Um, make a big difference to us when we reduce the number of people who don't need to be in jail. I mean, this is this is really like an epidemic that's occurred over the last 30 years with our war on drugs and tough on crime. And we have seen that it is not working at all. There are no less drug users today than there were. Um, and it's just cost us a lot of, uh, of money. And I, I think uh, we're we're on the precipice of a of a different outlook on drugs. Maybe, maybe we'll be like the next Portugal who decriminalizes them and sees a fifty percent drop in in drug use. Uh, it would be incredible if America was that progressive. But at least it's it's looking like we understand that the way we've been doing things 
uh, isn't working. Mm-hmm. And so the more people that understand that, um, the more lives that are being wasted away right now can be saved and we can uh, turn around our policies in the future so that it doesn't cost us so dang much for something that's not even working. I mean, when I first saw the number 46 and then I saw that President Obama has now um, commuted 90 sentences total in, in, during his administration and that that's the highest number of any president, I was like, okay, well, maybe he's kept the number down intentionally so that people... Um, you know, Republicans or, or conservatives don't say, well, now he's letting everybody out of, of, of prison and he shouldn't be. But uh, the sort of spokespeople of the conservative movement right now, the Koch brothers, uh, who I generally disagree with on everything, uh, even they are in support of releasing more of these people. So it doesn't seem that there's really any political debate about whether this is a good idea or not. I mean, this is the one issue that I can see that it looks like both Democrats and Republicans agree on um, is letting these people who qualify out. So I hope it happens and I hope it happens quickly. I worry about that, though, too. Not not that they're letting them out, but I worry that the restrictions are a little too harsh. Um, and my, my personal belief with that is that it's going to be very difficult to find somebody who's been in jail for 10 years who hasn't succumbed to the status quo in jail and ha- hasn't somehow ended up in some kind of brawl, somehow ended up in something violent in the prisons and then had that thrown as record. Yeah. And if you're going to make people wait for 10 years, they're more likely to end up in that and then be stuck there for life. Like, I feel like like the legalization of marijuana. I think it's legal in Colorado. I think that anyone who was arrested in the pat for that charge for marijuana in Colorado in a state where it's now legal should be immediately let out. We would be nice, but the federal government doesn't um, does still has marijuana as a a, a crime. So um, it's going to take pressure on our Congress people to decriminalize. Uh, marijuana. I, I totally believe in what Stephen's saying. And I also understand that this criteria um, is pretty stringent and that there are a lot of people who have relatively um, low-level offenses who are nonviolent, but you put them in jail and they might become violent or they have become involved in some kind of fight and now their whole life is ruined because of, you know, a couple of prison fights. So, yeah, I, I think after they have gone through more quickly all the people that meet this criteria that they should l- release it a little bit more. And, you know, maybe somebody that went in had a, a rough time getting used to being in jail and fought for a couple of years and was not a model um, citizen in, in, in prison, but over the years has really turned things around. And that person should be let out. I totally agree with Stephen that even this criteria is a little bit too stringent, but at least this is a place to start. But 46 people is, 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 not, is, enough. is not, it's not really, it's not enough. It's not, not even the. Uh, it's not. We didn't even reach a beyond the age of uh, what you qualify for Medicare, right? Yeah, <laughs> which is our next story. Yeah, and this one, which this, is fifty five, by the way. Yeah. So, so Medicare and the this, the topic of uh, end of life planning is not a sexy, trending legal story, but I felt it was important to cover this because this will affect a lot of us. Even though most of our viewers are young and vibrant, chances are you know and love somebody who's elderly. 
And there will come a time when they're at the end of their life and things can get very dramatic if people, doctors, the families don't know up front what that person would have wanted. Uh, it's, it's not only, you know, expensive to keep somebody alive on machines who will never recover, but we don't know that's what their wish is. Um, it's, it's traumatic for a family member to have to make that decision. You know, do I pull the plug or, or, or have them, you know, living on a machine? So in order to circumvent that problem, Medicare is now going to reimburse or they plan to reimburse doctors for having conversations with patients about end of life planning. And it seems a little silly that Medicare would have to do that. But, um, you know, doctors get paid for the services that they perform. And up to this point, conversation about end-of-life planning has not been a service that they get reimbursed for, which means that they either don't have those conversations or they don't have them very in-depth or, you know, it's it's not it's not a focus because doctors, as good as most of them are, and they're doing it from the right reasons, from a good place, you know, they, they need to make a living. And so they need to be um, doing the services that they can get billed that they can bill for and get reimbursed for. So it is a big deal that Medicare is um, planning to reimburse doctors because 80% of the deaths in the United States uh, are for people who are on Medicare because Medicare covers the elderly and, and disabled. And also where Medicare goes, private insurance tends to go. So it, it, it's a heads up that m- perhaps all doctors will be one day reimbursed for having uh, these these conversations, and there are, to me this this seems pretty I don't know standard or non controversial, mm-hmm. but there are some people, and Phil, you can tell me which side you agree with, that think that this is not a great idea because they think that doctors uh, tend to push people towards. Um, declining intervention like uh, ventilation machines or um, hey, things I mean, of that nature. I mean, here's what I, I... This is where I would look to hospices and look at their model. There's plenty of them out there in the United States, and uh, their model is very much... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quality and... Um, it's quality of life... And making sure, you know, and, you know, part of that, yes, they're very well aware that death may be, be an issue of that, right? So whereas um, uh, in the healthcare system, in, a, in an actual hospital, you know, they may be trying to delay death at the cost of, you know, pain and so on. So in, in a hospice, though, they'll give you pain meds and so on. Yeah. Because it's going to help you, it's going to help you. But again, there's that. There's a lot of effects with it. Yeah, there's and, certainly. What's really fascinating is that there, it, it, the 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 lengths to which people will go to keep loved ones alive when there's no chance of them sort of coming back to live any quality of life is 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 pretty staggering. But you can, I, I've not ever been in that situation, but I can empathize with people who are in that situation, like. What 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 do I what do I do? I don't think that this is going to push people into declining treatment, but I do think that when people hear the facts, like listen, we can 
you know, give you a, a feeding tube, but you're not going to come back to live uh, a happy, productive life, that people will then choose the, the hospice method of, well, just help me be comfortable, but don't keep me alive when there's really, I'm not ever going to come back and, and, and live a great life again. It brings up for people, you know, death and their attitude towards death. We have, as, as uh, Americans, have been very opposed anti-death. to anti-death. And, yeah, death is a very scary thing for people. It's also uh, a, a part of life. And, you know, on most days, I am not afraid of, of death itself. But I am, I would be afraid of, of I hope it doesn't hurt. <laughs> I don't want my death to be painful, but I think when people really understand and are explained, how well, I think it can that's be at the that's, end where, of the that's where the hospice goes. You know, part of their whole thing is not just inpatient care, outpatient care. It's also about the care of the family, and and you know, to ask doctors in a regular hospital setting to now not only cater to and, and nurses even. Uh, in particular, to care not only about the patient, but now be like, okay, you you know, you're responsible for the family. Um, that's where it does become a little bit more difficult, and that's, you know, again, that's a hospice. That's what it's designed to do. Yeah. I get, you know, it would be very tough to enact on a national level, but that's partly what and that that needs to have, you know, and, if and you ease that this, pain for people. That's what this policy will will tend to do. Medicare is going to reimburse. Um, not just doctors, but nurses and other medical professionals who have this conversation with not just their patients, but also the patient's family. Uh, and, and hopefully, uh, long conversations about it or multiple conversations about it. That'll be an, uh, another issue. Um, but I, I, I think this is a good thing. And I, I think, uh, this is not the same as saying that Medicare is saying you, um, uh, are being designated a doctor who is going to choose that for you. That's not what this is about. I, when we talk about end of life, there's a lot of fear that we talked about that, that comes up for people. And when something like this was de- debated in 2009 um, f- under the uh, Affordable Care Act, people like Sarah Palin were like, oh my gosh, now we're going to have death panels deciding your fate. And this is not it at all. This is leaving the decision up to the patient while they have the ability to think and speak for themselves um, before they don't have that that chance anymore. So, And this is expected to start uh, 2016, the start yeah. of 2016. But they're open to comments, as are we, so let <laughs> us know what you think, and you can even let Medicare know what you think. They want to know also. That's right. You know, uh, our message boards are great. We like hearing you guys, but ultimately the voice of the people is uh, in order for all the stuff that we talk about to actually move forward in any sort of way, uh, not only do we have to have conversation, we have to have meaningful conversation, and that meaningful conversation has to lead into some sort of action. So galvanize people. That's what we're here to do for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure, Chelsea Galicia. Where can the people find you? At Chelsea Galicia. Easy enough. And follow us here at uh, BHL Online on uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook.com slash Black Hollywood Live. And Black Hollywood Live is the website. We are Justice is Served. And we have a whole roster of other shows. We do have a political show that takes the, you know, sometimes they cross-reference some of the stories that we cover from a political perspective. We have a, uh, this week that does uh, news and gossip. So, you know, I'm sure they'll be talking about uh, 50 in their own different way. Um, 
We have a fashion show. We have a music show. We have a tech show. We have a reality show. All these shows just for you. So whatever your passion is, if it happens to be legal and something else, uh, you know, go and go and do that. Chelsea Galisi, one of her famous lines is, you know, please don't label me as just a lawyer. So she has other passions too, and so she listens to the other Black Hollywood Live shows. We'll see you next time on another Justice is Served. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Christian, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. Hollywood redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.